Well, good morning once again. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Before we get into our message today, I wanted to make just a comment about the schedule upcoming now. Um, starting, I think it's November 27th, during our exhortation times, we're going to be focusing on Advent. So Advent just means coming, and it is a time in the church calendar when we look forward to and anticipate the coming of the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And so for those five weeks, with the fifth week being uh, Christmas morning, we have church on Christmas morning, which is super exciting this year. We're going to be using that time to look at the anticipation, the longing that existed in the world before the coming of the Messiah. And to help you and to help all of us in that anticipation, starting next Sunday, we're going to have some Advent devotionals available. These are free of charge to you, and it's a 25-day reading. So starting on December 1st, very short readings, but it will help you focus your attention on Christ, on His coming, on the anticipation leading up to His coming. And so I encourage you, starting next Sunday, grab one of those Advent devotionals and use it to help you as you build the expectation of the coming of Jesus. It's a great tool for you to have and to use. Now this morning, we come to visions 6 and 7 in the book of Zechariah. We will finish the vision section next Sunday. But for this morning, we are going to look at this message that was delivered roughly 520 B.C., so a little over 500 years before the coming of Jesus. And as we have looked at the book of Zechariah, we have seen some strange things. We've seen some imagery that we needed to look at and try to understand what's going on, and today promises to be the same thing. But even though the imagery used here in chapter 5 might not be what you or I would choose, to communicate the point, I think it is nonetheless pretty straightforward, and we will get to that here in just a moment. As we have looked at what God thus far has promised to do for his people, do you remember this back from even in Haggai and then into the prophet Zechariah's book? God has promised to avenge his people. He's, he's going to protect them against these nations that were oppressing them, that had taken them into captivity. He is going to supply what they need, both physically for the building of the temple and also, and more importantly, spiritually. Through his spirit and through his presence, he is going to give his people the ability they need to be obedient. And he has promised the return of his presence with his people, not in judgment, but in blessing. And we said a couple of weeks ago that in order for this to happen, in order for God to return to his people, something needed to take place. Do you remember what that was? The people had largely rejected the law of God. They had turned to doing their own thing. They had broken commandments. They had rejected God. And so there was this sin problem that existed with the people. And we saw in chapter 3... How God is illustrating the fact that sin needs to be removed, his people need to be cleansed, and they need to be clothed with his righteousness. They need to be able to stand in his presence. So there's a big problem. If God is going to return to the people, they need to be cleansed. But this is not a work they can do. It's a work that God must do. And so that's what we've seen. Now this morning, as we look at chapter 5, we are going to see once again how God deals with sin. 
And you might say, well, come on, haven't we already talked about this? We already saw this. Why is this coming up yet again? And I would just say, because sin is so pervasive. When you consider how much the Bible talks about it, how it tells us God's plan to redeem sinners, to cleanse them from their sin, to reverse the curse of sin that was placed on the world at the garden, This is a big theme in the Bible. So it should not be surprising when time and time again we come across the ways and the patterns in which God deals with his people in regards to their sin. So as we look at this chapter today, we are going to see how God deals with it. And this is illustrated in this flying scroll and the woman in the basket. And as we look at this chapter, we're going to see three main things. We're going to see sin discovered. Sin judged and sin removed. So you can use that a little bit as a framework. So let's turn to chapter 5 of Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. And follow along as we read Isaiah. Zechariah. Don't turn to Isaiah yet. We'll get there. Zechariah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll... And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, What, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Let's pray. Father, we once again come to you in great need of your help. We know and we profess that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for us that we may be equipped and strengthened and convicted and encouraged. And we come to some of these texts and we just admit, Lord, that we need your help. We need the Spirit of God to open our understanding. So as we look at this chapter this morning, Lord, and we see your work in removing sin I pray this would not just be some uh, historical detail that's interesting to us, but that it would affect us, God, that we would turn to our own hearts and our own lives and examine ourselves in light of your standard. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who 
came and perfectly obeyed your law so that we might have life through him. And I pray that we would not despair because of our sinfulness, but that we would hope in him, put our faith in him, and rely upon Christ for the obedience that we cannot perform. So God, please come and speak to us this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if this happened to you when you were growing up, but did anyone ever say to you, maybe you're being particularly sneaky or trying to cover something up, and probably an adult said, be sure your sins will find you out. Anyone? Nope, just me? All right. That's okay. So what that saying is communicating is that no matter how much you try to hide something, no matter how deep you bury it, it is going to come to the surface. And that's not just a parental saying that they teach you in parent school. That is a quote from Moses, from the book of Numbers. And he's telling the people, look, it doesn't matter how much you try to brush sin under the rug, how much you try to ignore it or act like it isn't a big deal, be sure your sins will find you out. In other words, be sure your deeds will be brought to light. That is similar to what is being communicated here in Zechariah 5 with this flying scroll. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we are going to see that sin is discovered. Sin is discovered. Now, scrolls in the ancient Near East had a number of uses. Of course, it was communication. If you wanted to record something and write it down, you would write it on a scroll, and that's how information was passed. It was also used for record-keeping, Uh, as we see oftentimes that the scrolls were discovered after they had been lost and the records were read and people were brought back into alignment. The word of God was recorded on scrolls. We see Jesus in Luke 4 reading from the scroll of Isaiah. But there was also another purpose that would have been more familiar to Israel and that was this imagery of judgment or warning coming to them in the form of these scrolls. In Jeremiah 36, there is a scroll prepared for the wicked king of Judah, telling him about the destruction coming. In Ezekiel chapter 2, there is a scroll that is written and read containing these warnings and judgments and messages of woe. So for the people of God, especially Zechariah, he's the mouthpiece of God. He's the one who takes what God communicates to him and says it to the people, when he sees a scroll, he's probably like, oh no, what's, what's coming? What's going to happen? And he's not wrong, because the message on this scroll is, in a sense, one of warning. Now, verse 3 references the Ten Commandments and also tells us what the primary purpose of this scroll was. The scroll is two-sided, with the Eighth Commandment on one side, this is the prohibition against stealing, and on the other side is the Ninth Commandment prohibiting the bearing of false witness, especially in the name of God. And as we get into later chapters, specifically chapter 8, we're going to see that these two things, stealing and bearing false witness, were particularly pervasive problems for the nation of Israel at this time. And God's going to deal with that when he gets there a little bit later. And of course, the violation of the Eighth and Ninth Commandments are ultimately violations of what Jesus would call the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's all of this stage being set here, right? For the command of God, the law of God, and the fact that the people have broken this law. So the flying scroll goes through all the land, 
bearing testimony to the law that God had given and the fact that the people had broken this law. They had not only rejected it, but they had broken it. And an interesting detail that's included is the size. I don't know how many of you read this ahead of time, but you read this and you go, what does that have to do with anything? So it's 10 cubits by 15 cubits. What's the point? Well, the point is that this is all imagery. Okay, It's all meant to communicate something about something else. And the dimensions, the 10 by 15 cubits, are the same dimensions as the holy place in the temple. This is a space right outside the Holy of Holies where God would communicate to the priests his message, his promises, the lampstand, the showbread. This was all representative in the holy place. And so the scroll takes on this added dimension for the readers of this message. They would equate that with the holy place. But it not only relates to it, I think it increases. Because what's happening is that the holy place is stationary, right? It's in the temple. You had to come there to find out what the requirement was. What does God want us to know? Well, you made the journey. You came there. And the priest would tell you what was going on. The scroll is mobile. You don't have to go to it. It comes to you, which is both a good and a bad thing, depending on your righteousness, depending on how you trusted and obeyed the Lord. So it is no longer the case that the people of God can simply avoid going to this place. I don't want to know what God says. I don't want to be subject to his law. I'm not going to go there and find out. That's not going to work anymore because this scroll bearing the law of God is coming for you. So it's no longer just a stationary place you can avoid. It's mobile. Okay, so that's one way that this uh, scroll is not only a representative of something, but it also increases the meaning. The message. The eighth and ninth commandments. We shouldn't see this too narrowly as in, well, this is the only thing it's talking about. This is meant to show us that God has a standard, God has a law, the people had broken this law, and therefore God is showing them in very clear detail the laws that they have broken. This is meant to bring conviction from sin. The fact that this scroll is mobile, that it flies into every house, is meant to show that there is nowhere the people can go and escape the law of God. It's not as if they can just hide it or sweep their sin under the rug. Be sure your sins will find you out. The scroll goes into every house bearing testimony to the law of God. The people may have tried to hide, but that's not going to work because the law of God finds them. Now, you and I live in a time, and it's been like this for a while, we live in a time and a culture where sin has almost completely been normalized. And people are generally more and more numbed to the effects of sin. Things that years ago would have been shameful to even talk about in public are now flaunted celebrated, promoted. I'm not saying that it was better that they were hidden. Sin is still sin. It's breaking of God's command, whether it's public or private. It's kind of what this is telling us. But think about the progression. That things that were just even socially, you just didn't do that. You didn't talk about that. It's just now celebrated. We see this progression of wickedness around us. And yet even with that increased publicity, 
with the kind of lack of restraint and shame that we see around us, there are still things that people would rather keep private. There are still things, because they know ultimately that this is wrong, that people want to hide. We want to keep it from getting out. But this text tells us that there is nothing that can be hidden from God. He is going to find out. Nothing can be dug down into a deep enough hole or hidden dark in the closet. God will discover the sin that is in our lives. For the past several decades, the military has used something called heat-seeking missiles. And they lock onto a thermal target that emits heat, and that becomes the target, and boom, that's where it goes. This scroll is kind of like that where it is searching out sin, it is revealing the law of God, and it is going to find the sinner. And it is going to reveal to them their lack of ability to keep the commands of God. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Nothing can be hidden from God. There's a great quote by A.W. Pink in his attributes. He says, How serious and solemn is this fact Nothing can be concealed from God. Though he is invisible to us, we are not so to him. Neither the darkness of night, the closest curtains, nor the deepest dungeon can hide any sinner from the eyes of omniscience. So the scroll tells us you can't hide. You cannot hide from God's standard. Another thing that it tells us is that God is the one who determines what sin is. It is his law that's displayed on this billboard-sized scroll that is flying through the nation. God does not say, why don't you guys all get together and you communally decide what you think is right and what you think is wrong and just go with that. Can you imagine? Well, we can because that's kind of what we're seeing around us. If it's agreed upon by the majority, it must be right, right? Wrong. God is the one who gives us standards for behavior, for ethics, for morality, for every part of our life. And it is revealed in his law. He is the one who tells us, through his word, through his self-revelation, what his standard is. And this is what it means for us to be Christians, if you belong to Christ, that you don't make up your own standard. You cannot approach your life on the basis of what you feel or your experience or your human intellect, or wisdom, or smarts, or IQ, or whatever. You have to live your life in light of the Word of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. We don't govern ourselves. We submit ourselves, every one of us, to Christ, our King, who has given us a standard and told us what He expects from us. The law of God is perfect, precisely because it is His law and not ours. So sin is discovered by this flying scroll. In verse 4, we see then sin judged. Look at verse 4 with me. God says, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timbers and stones. So what happens when the law of God encounters sin? What happens when perfect holiness hits head-on the sinfulness of man? In the discipline of philosophy or logic, there's something called the law of non-contradiction. You never heard of that? 
the law of non-contradiction says that two opposing things cannot be true at the same time in the same way. So in other words, if I were to tell you, my name is Jacob, and then I tell you, my name is not Jacob, only one of those things can be true. They can't both be true at the same time. Either I'm Jacob or I'm not. That's what the law of non-contradiction states. Similarly, when God's law, his righteous standard, confronts sin, both of those things cannot remain on equal ground at the same time. One has to go. God does not abide wickedness. He will not tolerate it and just say, well, it's fine. We can both be here. They cannot both be true at the same time. So when the law of God confronts the sinfulness of man, something has to happen. And we see in verse 4 that that something is God's judgment on sin. Verse 4, and it, this is the law, the standard, shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. In this we see a picture of God's word, his law, doing the work. It reveals sin, it judges sin. We're going to see in just a little bit that it will remove sin as well. And it's important to note that the scroll enters and remains until the work is done. It doesn't just fly through and hope that it gets everything. The God's dealing with sin is complete. It always has been. And it always will be. God's judgment on sin was, is, and will be complete and total. The reference to timber and stone is the foundational part of the house. Meaning if that is consumed, if that is done with, everything else follows. God does not bring his law to bear on the hearts of mankind for a redecoration project. He is not about painting over the problem or just shifting it off to the side and acting like it wasn't there. He brings his law to bear for total and full conviction of sin and also restoration of the person. Paul says, unless it was for the law, I wouldn't have even known what sin was. He was just going on sinning and sinning and sinning, having no clue until the law of God comes and says, that is wrong. And what a blessing. What a blessing that we have the God-given law his requirement, his spirit, his standard to keep us from throwing everything away. So, verse 4, sin is discovered and it is judged. And that's the language of this consuming of the house when the scroll enters. Now, let's look at the rest of the chapter. We're going to see this seventh vision which is very closely related to the six, which is why God puts them right after one another. And in verses 5 through 11, we see sin removed. We see sin removed. Now, the removal of sin is pictured as this woman in the basket being carried out of the land and back to Babylon. Let's read starting in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, well, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Now, in this vision, the iniquity, the sin of God's people is personified. It is shown as a human being, as a woman, in this basket. And this is likely meant to illustrate the fact that the people of God had, at times, 
actually very frequently, chased other gods. They were led astray into idol worship largely through seduction and impurity. This was the tactic of the nations around them, that they would get other people to worship their God by offering this sexual immorality as kind of an enticement to come worship their gods. And so among other things, the woman in this basket represents the idolatry of the people. They're forsaking God. They're forsaking of his commandments. And the angel just says as a blanket statement, this is wickedness personified in this basket. Now the woman is being held in the basket by a leaden cover, illustrating that if sin is not carefully guarded, if there is not a great level of intentionality in keeping that where it belongs, it's going to pop out and start doing its destructive work all over again. The double use of this verb in verse 8, the ESV renders it thrust the woman was thrust down into the basket and the leaden weight was thrust down on Potiphar. This is telling us the level of intensity that we ought to deal with sin. We cannot just act like sin is a light thing, like it is inconsequential. The thing that scares me the most is when I talk with someone about an ongoing habitual sin and they think, yeah, I think I got it under control. No, you don't. That is the most dangerous thing for us to say, I think I can handle this. No, you can't. Paul said in Romans 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. We need two things, and more than two, but we need the Spirit of God working in us, and we need a level of intensity to fight against our sin. Do not Take sin as a light thing. It is not inconsequential. It will ruin you. And this thrusting, this vigor that we see in this vision is meant to tell us, don't mess around with this. Thrust it down in there. Put the weight on top of it. Don't peek under the cover. Leave it there. This is not a joke. Sin is a destructive, suicidal, demonic power. That will ruin your life if you don't take necessary steps. That's what we're seeing. There is intensity to the dealing of sin here. Now, the point of this vision is not to tell us that women are responsible for all the wickedness in the world. It's not the point. But it is telling us that the problem is with people. It's personified. The angel doesn't open the basket and inside there's a bunch of philosophies. There's a bunch of ideas. There's a bunch of liberal op-ed pieces from the local paper. That's not what's in there. There's a person in there. And the point is that when Israel hears this vision, they should hear, and he opened the basket and I was in there. There's a person in there. Sin is not some abstract, out there kind of idea floating around. It is done by human beings. Us. And you can't just blame everything else around us for this. Oh, it's, it's the media's fault. It's the, it's the world. Everyone's icky out there. If we could just get away from all this, you know what? If all of that was taken away, if all the influence, if all the social media and the entertainment and the whatever, if that was all gone, there would still be a problem because the problem is in our heart. It's sin. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's around us. We are sinful by birth and by nature. 
And yes, stay away from the unhelpful stuff, but it's not, that's not the reason. Sin is so sneaky and it is so dangerous. And it's not just the idea, it's the fact that we all sin and are deserving of judgment. Hell is not populated with sin. It's populated with sinners. And as much as we might like to blame our condition on all these outside influences, you and I are responsible to God for our sin. Jesus said, it's the heart that make your hands do what they do, that make your mouth speak the biting words that it speaks. It's a matter of the heart. Which is why I said earlier, that this problem of sin is not something the people could solve on their own. They needed help. You and I need help. And that's where we'll get here in a moment. Out of our sinful hearts come the most outrageous forms of wickedness. So in this vision, Zechariah sees that in this basket there is wickedness and it is personified which tells him and the people and us now that the problem is not ideas it's not philosophies it's not secular media it's not the news it's not the president it's not the government it is our heart that is sinful a person's heart that is sinful now let's keep going and see in verse 9 what's going to happen with this basket verse 9 i lifted my eyes and saw and behold two women coming forward The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, they're taking it to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now more strange imagery, but let's let's talk about what this means. These women who are said to come with the wind in their wings, we'll talk about that in a moment, have the wings of a stork. Now, storks, again, remember, this is all imagery to help us understand something. Storks were migratory birds, very common in this part of the world at this time, and they were known for being able to fly tremendous distances. I mean, farther than almost any other bird. So when we see that the sin, the wickedness represented by this woman in the basket is going to be carried off by storks, women with stork wings. That should tell us that it is going to be taken far away. It's not just going to be moved a couple of yards. This is going way out. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. It's going a long way away. The fact that they come with, quote, the wind in their wings tells me that they are doing the bidding of God. Why do I say that? Because the word wind is ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit, often referring to the Holy Spirit of God. So when I read this about these two women coming with the wind in their wings, whether these are some kind of angelic creature or simply just used for the illustration, it tells me that they are coming literally prompted and carried by the Spirit of God to do the bidding of God and remove this transgression far away from the people. And where do they take it? They take it back to Babylon, specifically to Shinar. Now, the location of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was. 
Remember the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, right after the flood? God had said to the people, okay, go, scatter over all the earth, multiply, populate it. And they said, nope, I think we know better. And we're going to go to Shinar, we're going to build this huge tower, and we're going to make a name for ourselves and stick our thumbs in our suspenders and act like we're really cool. Well, God says, no, you're not. And of course, we know he scatters the language. He scatters them all over the world. Shinar, as we look at history backwards, we can trace back to Shinar as being kind of the hub of wickedness, of sin in that part of the world and in that time. If we fast forward to the book of Revelation, we see that Babylon, a.k.a. Shinar, is also in the future the hub of all things wicked and idolatrous and sinful. So it seems fitting that the wickedness of the people is taken away, far away, to the place where wickedness began. And there it will sit until all of their iniquity is filled up and the judgment of God finally falls on them. Now, the fact that it's set on a base, everything means something here. This is so interesting. So the very last verse of the chapter They're going to take it there and we'll set it down on the base. That base literally is like a shrine. So what we're seeing is a contrast, a stark, stark, not stork, a stark contrast between Jerusalem, temple built, presence of God, place of worship, holiness, purity, and Babylon, where wickedness dwells. There it is actually promoted and celebrated and set on a shrine for the people to worship it. See the contrast? This is where God dwells. This is where wickedness dwells. God is making a separation between him and his people and where he has promised to dwell with them and where the wickedness and sin will go to be punished. So, what should we do with this? What should we do with these visions? I mean, we get it, right? I think we can understand this, that God... By his law, exposes and discovers sin. He punishes sin. The sin will be removed. But what are you and I supposed to do with this chapter? I think we can boil this down to the fact that holiness and wickedness are incompatible. God does not put up with sin, ultimately. Yes, he is patient, he is gracious. All of the world right now is under sin and is sinning, and yet God allows it to go on. But ultimately, he will not tolerate sin. He will not come and dwell permanently with sinners unless the sin is taken care of. The reality of your life and mine is that we are under the curse of sin. That's what it says early in the chapter, that the scroll goes out and brings a curse over the face of the whole land. That curse is sin. And I, I am so surprised, and I shouldn't be, I am so surprised at how quickly and how easy it is for me to give in to sin. It is such a short step. Anger, that was the case yesterday for me frustration, temptation, whatever it is. We need help. We need help dealing with this sin problem. 
Because God in his purity and his holiness will not stand side by side and coexist with sin forever. He won't do it. He can't. That would be a violation of his very nature. So what are we to do? If we desire the blessing of God, the presence of God, not in judgment but in blessing, what do we do? The answer is actually very simple and you already know it. And that is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and the giving of his righteousness. We sing these words often. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. There is only one remedy for sin. There is only one remedy for sinners and that is to put your faith and your hope in Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness of your sin. I leave you with the verses from Galatians chapter 3. We've already seen that all of the world is under the curse of sin. We need that curse reversed. So Paul says this in Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. That's the problem. Verse 13. Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that is salvation by faith, might come to the Gentiles so that through him we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The only way to reverse the curse is to trust in the one who bore the curse for you. Let's pray. God, thank you that in your wisdom you have revealed the greatest problem that we have. Our problem is not a lack of education. It is not a lack of knowledge or experience. Our problem is sin. And I thank you that in your sovereign grace, you have provided a way for sin to be dealt with through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, all of us here are, are struggling with sin in some way, whether our own or the effects of someone else's sin against us, or whether it be physical suffering and pain, which is a result of the fall as well. Lord, we all need rescue from this curse. So even now, as we're able to come to the table... I pray that you would remind us that we cannot be good enough to please you. We cannot do enough good things or stay away from enough bad things to make ourselves right with you. We simply need to trust in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the clothing of his righteousness so that we can stand before you and dwell in your presence. God, thank you that you did not leave us to perish in our sins, but have sent your Son. 
Help each one of us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to turn away from sin, to fight it with intensity, to live lives that are marked by holiness and the pursuit of your truth. And would you strengthen us to be the kind of people that are worthy of the calling to which you have called us. So God, we thank you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.